Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's a real privilege to have on the show one of my colleagues at Asbury Seminary, Dr. Ken Collins. Ken is the professor of historical theology and Wesley studies, and there aren't too many people on the planet, literally, that know Wesleyan theology as deeply as Ken does. Now today, we're in it for a treat because he has a new book out that's more popular in its uh, in scope called Jesus the Stranger, the Man of Galilee and the Light of the World. Uh, Ken in this book, and the title is very inviting, presents a robust portrait of Jesus for the 21st century drawn out of the scriptures that lays out maybe some things that might help make us feel a little uncomfortable about the Jesus that we think we know. You're going to love this conversation. You'll see Ken's heart for the gospel, the abundance of his knowledge, and the way that he's able to articulate clearly in ways that can help us be better followers of Jesus. You can look up the rest of his works in the show notes. He's known for a definitive collection of John Wesley's sermons, also for the recently released and uh, co-edited with Robert Wall, the Wesley one-volume commentary, along with a array of scholarly articles and books on John Wesley himself. But today, we're going to get to hear Ken talk about Jesus the Stranger. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Ken. Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. It's great to be here, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's it's a real privilege and honor to have you on, and I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. I know it's going to bless uh, the folks that are listening to it. Just to jump into the questions, I, I always like to introduce you by allowing you to talk about some key moments in your spiritual journey that led you to get a full career, long-time ministry of teaching, research, and writing about Wesleyan theology and obviously other things. But can you just share a little bit about the journey that's brought you to today? Yeah, I think uh, a pivotal time was when I had just graduated college. Uh, I was back in Brooklyn uh, in my mom and dad's house, and I had the good fortune of meeting a retired free Methodist minister uh, who introduced me to John Wesley's 52 Standard Sermons. Uh, I had never read them before. I read them, saw an ent- a new world, a new world that I had not known, and I grew up uh, in the church, um, but saw in Wesley's sermons um, a freedom uh, and a goodness of the gospel and a liberty that I had not uh, heard before and uh, had not realized before. So that was a real game changer. And so that's why Wesley has always been important to me. It was in reading his sermons that he really shook me up, showed me that the gospel is more than I had imagined, uh, and basically reoriented me uh, to the the richness of, um, of of the good news, yeah. And how long have you been at Asbury Seminary now? Well, I, I came to Asbury in 1995, so what, that's like 26 years or so now, so I've been here for, for quite a while. Um, really enjoy being here. This is a great community, as you know. Um, uh, there's a real fellowship uh, among 
uh, the people here at Asbury, especially among the faculty. Um, so I, I really do, it's a, it's a great environment. And we're here to speak principally about your new seedbed book. It came out in the summer of 2021, and I'll hold it up on the video for those who are watching. Jesus the Stranger, the man from Galilee and the light of the world. What's the backstory on this book that led you at this point in your career to write a book where you essentially work through texts and give some really deep reflections on who Jesus is? So what, what brought you to this point in your career, Ken? Yeah, actually, uh, I was thinking about doing perhaps one last Wesley book, uh, and in my prayer life, uh, the Holy Spirit laid upon my heart that, no, that's not what you're supposed to be doing now. You're supposed to be doing something about Jesus, and I had been thinking about Jesus for a long time, especially how I read the Gospels, and the thing that really moved me in that direction uh, in light of my prayer life was I didn't recognize the Jesus that's out there in our culture. I, I didn't recognize that Jesus. And sometimes I don't recognize the Jesus that's in some churches. I don't. Uh, and because of that, I wanted to bring forward a book which would uh, get at the identity of Jesus through suffering, but not so much his physical suffering, as through his emotional, psychological, spiritual suffering as he is rejected uh, and ostracized by key people throughout the pages of the Bible, running from hometown folk to his own family and even to his own disciple, Peter. Uh, and when you do that, uh, we get to see Jesus in a new way. We get to see him in light of deep and rich suffering. Um, and then I think on a second level, I wrote it for people like you and me and our audience uh, who want to be serious disciples of Jesus Christ. And we are suffering. And we are suffering in all sorts of ways because we live in the midst of a toxic culture. Uh, and so we have the opportunity now to know Jesus in a new way by participating in his suffering um, and then to become more like Jesus by means of that. And that is, of course, to become beautiful. And, and when you talk about the misconceptions about Jesus, now you obviously mentioned the toxicity in the culture, but what would you say are some of the common misinterpretations of Jesus, and we can just focus within the Christian world if you want to, but I'd like to hear your take on maybe popular culture a little bit too. What are your kind of concerns that, in a sense, we need to re-proclaim Jesus' suffering at this, at this day, in this day? Yeah, I think some of the misconceptions in our culture is chock full of them. Would I'd start out with a politicized Jesus, whether from the right or the left. That's good. That somehow or other we think that politics is the greatest narrative of all. It is not. Yeah. There are far more basic and more important uh, uh, elements to life, uh, especially when we speak of the religious, the spiritual God that whole dimension, if you will, uh, far more important, far more uh, extensive, and the opportunity for universal. In other words, Christians may differ about their politics, but they can still uh, celebrate the Lord at the same table. Yes. Uh, and what I'm seeing out there is that political 
difference is becoming determinative. Uh, and that is unfortunate. And so one of my goals in writing this book was to offer Jesus, to show Jesus in a new way so that we could all be one in Christ and we could unite in the recognition of the beauty of Christ uh, as displayed in humble, sacrificial love for the other, for us, and for the least of all. Now, that's really powerful. Just so, so is the is when you wrote the book, did, did you know that COVID was happening or were you already writing the book? And how did that actually, how do you see it being timely for our day? Because obviously the po political stuff almost speaks for itself and it overlaps. But wh what about the, the, the you know, exacerbation of all these effects through this long kind of pandemic that, you know, who knows, hopefully it'll be gone, maybe even by the time the episode comes out, but I don't think so. So yeah, it's interesting that you raised the COVID issue yeah. because no interviewer before has done so. And you're on to something, actually. So you're you're drawing me out. You're you're revealing something about the book that other interviewers have not picked up. Um, this book was essentially begun when COVID began, wow. I mean, I was working and I had more opportunity because I was spending so much time alone. Yeah. So much time alone because of COVID being restricted in terms of group participation. Uh, and then for people who read the book, especially the introduction, they realize that when I pray, I combine physical activity with prayer. So I run, I do long distance running. Wow. I run like five miles and I pray while I run. And my prayers are very thick. And I thought through this book, even in terms of the writing from day to day in, in a rich prayer life, um, being alone because of COVID, but being centered in texts. Yeah. So your, your question actually is very, very good. No, and, and I love the way the book was set up. And it actually just raised, now I hear that you run, because um, I don't think I knew that about you. And that's one of those real fun facts that comes out in interviews, because it's what I noticed about just the, the you know, the shape of the book. Um, and you can almost read it devotionally. I mean, you could, you could read one chapter a day, and they're not really that long. But, you know, you work through, as you already said, Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and then um, the post-resurrection appearances. Uh, but then one of the powerful things, and and I and I when I read this, I was like, wow, it's in a sense, it's almost like, and you tell me if this is wrong, the yeah. climax of your book is your prayer at the end. Is that true? Is that how you put that together? Is that like an appendix? Because you literally have if with readers, and this is what I was stunned by, you have this litany of confession, repentance, and renewal. And and it's um, it's what 10 pages, right? It's like over, it's over 10 pages. And I was like, this is amazing. Well, thank you for that. Uh, however, it's not the climax oh. of the book. And I'm going to leave that question open because that's actually an interesting question. Yeah, because yeah. some readers see the climax in different places yeah. than others. And I, I want no spoilers. No, that's uh, fair. You know, I don't want to have to give spoiler alerts. So I'm going to allow your, your readership and your audience to decide that issue. But you're right to focus on the litany at the end. And so let me tie some threads with that. Yeah, please. Um, I wanted this to be a narrative journey. Yeah. Uh, I wanted it to be to engage the reader to for it to be a participatory sort of activity. What I didn't want, and I wanted to really bracket this out, would be a reading 
of a book just for information, for facts, bring your cogitating intellect to the book. You know, I've got the facts. My cogitating intellect is the center. I'm never moved, never caught up in a story, never disturbed, never challenged, never addressed. And so I work hard as a writer to disengage that reading. It doesn't work because this really is a journey. It's participatory because we're human beings with minds and hearts and wills and love and passions and language, story, narrative can engage all of those dimensions. So at the end of such a journey, I would have been remiss if I did not provide an opportunity for people who have been greatly moved. And that's what I'm hearing for those who have read the text. They are moved by this. Yeah, it's good. Um, it is a moving account um, that to have some outlet of response. And so at the end, you're right. There is a litany of confession, repentance, and renewal. And why is it there? Because through this narrative journey, people see Jesus in a new way. Yes. You know, one thinks of Peter uh, when Jesus told him to go out and fish and he said, no, no, no. And then he did and he caught all the fish and then he comes back to the shore. And then he says to Jesus, get, you know, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. He had a greater recognition of himself in light of who Jesus is. He saw the beauty and the goodness of Jesus in a whole new way. And that, uh, in a sense, was a reflection on him. And so an opportunity for confession, repentance, and renewal. And I want to talk about selection a little bit, because, I mean, that's that's the hardest part of writing a book about Jesus is figuring out what text to include and what not to include. And, and again, you wrote the readers. This is a readable book. It's not incredibly long, but it's long enough that you, you know, you don't kind of you every time you pick text, you run the risk of just finding the Jesus that you want to find. But you keep with the whole story. Obviously, you couldn't cover every verse and every gospel. But what was the hardest part for you in writing the book? to limit yourself to whatever number of texts you ultimately went with? Did you struggle? Did, and maybe what's the text that you almost brought in that didn't include? I just like to hear and let the readers know your own process as you try yeah, to um, reintroduce Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Let me start out with an image. And I present this image in the introduction. I considered the selection of texts much like a curator in an art gallery is going to select a number of paintings for a particular exhibition. Okay, in order to highlight perhaps an artist or a theme. And so I considered the gospel text as paintings that I was going to gather together for a thematic journey. In other words, we are focused on a theme. And the theme is uh, the suffering and alienation and rejection of Christ. Uh, and that emerging through key relationships he has throughout the gospel. And so I was very careful in the selection of texts uh, to show Jesus in contrast to key players uh, in the gospel narratives, whereby not only is their identity revealed, but the identity of Jesus is revealed as well. So it is very focused. It's a, a, a thematic presentation. It's, it's a narrative journey. It has a beginning, it has a middle, uh, and it has a climax, uh, and then it has an, an afterward, if you will. 
And how did you decide, and just getting some facts out, this is my biblical scar part of me, how did you decide on what translations to, to actually use that would be the most helpful? Because that's always the risk too, is like, which one to pick? I mean, did you have any struggle with that or any thoughts behind the, the actual text? Yeah, and I, yes, we did struggle at times with it. Um, I, I, by and large, went with the NIV, although the NIV did not work in some instances. Um, so, for example, in terms of Barabbas, uh, the whole custom of releasing the prisoner, the NIV, I don't think really uh, was helpful there. So we went with the New American Standard Bible, which contains a verse uh, that is helpful in understanding the context of Barabbas and the custom of releasing that the NIV does not. So there were considerations like this, and I can understand as a biblical scholar why you'd be concerned with this, and the judgment had to be made that, okay, here, we're not going to go with the NIV, we're going to go with the NASB. And so, yes, I was well aware of how other English versions translated key passages, and I went with the one that basically served the, the um, thematic presentation, the narrative journey, yeah. Yeah, and that wasn't really so much a skeptical question because the you know obviously the the you always use you use entire pericopes for the most part with right. just very that's few right. exceptions, and that's always the thing. It's like when you're picking a verse and you change the translation because you don't like what verse. And but you right. use enough context, it's a good thing. I was just curious. I think it's always fun right. for people to hear. How do you yeah. decide uh, what's the backstory on but on that? I, so thank you. I will yeah. add to it that this was a very belabored process. Yeah, this yeah. took a long time to do. In other words, to select the passages uh, and to put it together. Uh, more time than I'm willing to admit. It took a lot of time to get it right. Um, so the book is a very structured book, but that's enjoyable for readers because they have a sense of orientation yeah. no matter where they are in the book. They know where they've been. They know where they're going. Um, there is a kind of narrative pause in chapter 13 when Jesus is talking with the young Jewish leader and they're talking about things that matter. Um, there's a section of chapters 22, 23, and 24, three chapters in a row on discipleship then and now. So sort of stepping back and saying, well, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? What does it mean to be hated because Jesus is hated? What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus Christ today? What does selling out Jesus Christ look like? What are the beginnings of that? Those three chapters start to raise those issues, which are very important given our contemporary context. No, that's so, that's so good. And, and that even follows the, as you know, the, all the gospels, there's a point at which uh, Jesus just makes this decisive turn. It's right at Caesarea Philippi for the most part, and then Jesus shifts. And so why is that very turn the critical question? You just raised, I mean, I almost could ask you the questions that you just raised. I don't want to ruin your book for your audience. Again, those who are interested, we're talking about Jesus, the stranger, the man from Galilee and the land of the world available from Seedbed, seedbed.com. And you can also find it on, on Amazon. So why is the issue of suffering? I know, I know it's cultural, but what is it exactly that you're hoping your ideal reader learns or maybe is encouraged or maybe even what was it that you needed to learn yourself in order to be a better disciple today? 
And I think what that is, is, and it is through the suffering of Jesus, that we see he doesn't avoid it. Uh, he doesn't try to get away from it. He doesn't rail at the Father because it's come. Uh, he's not looking for an easy way out. But what he does is it's humble, sacrificial love in the midst of suffering. Uh, and all of that for the sake of others. And so if we look at the cross, for example, here we see Jesus you know, being rejected, ostracized to the max. I mean, he's basically pushed on a pole that has a circumference of, of about a foot. Uh, and he's having dialogue, you know, with the very least of all, with, with criminals. Uh, and so here we see uh, the display of the love of God uh, precisely in a place where we might not expect it. Uh, in the midst of torture, mocking, and shame. And so when we see the beauty of and the goodness of Jesus in remaining steadfast and faithful in the midst of all that human beings threw at him, and to see that because he loved others, because he wanted God's love in that place, especially in that place, I think we come away from that uh, I, I, I think we come away from that never the same again. We never think about God and the things of God again, in the same way again. When we think about the highest, the greatest, the most exalted, lots of times we fill that chock full of sinful pride, what we think is great, what we think is noble or lofty. But when we get to Golgotha and we see Jesus uh, dying on the cross, we get a revelation of God that I think not only transformed the centurion who has to borrow the language from the Jews and say, surely this man was the son of God. Uh, you know, we, we begin to see light uh, in this darkness. And it's not all about physical suffering because there is a beauty here a beauty that's being revealed that has to do with all the other kinds of suffering that Calvary represents. Alienation, rejection, ostracism. And this is the stuff of our world today. Yeah. And, I, and I'm with you. I, I just get so excited. So when I think about just Jesus' story, I would almost say, even if it wasn't historically true, I would still want to sign up because it's so powerful. And again, I'm not claiming atheism or anything in front of one of my colleagues from the seminary, but everything you just said is such a compelling piece. Like here is a story, well, you just laid it out, all the suffering, sac sacrificial all the way to the end. Um, yet, And in the, the great news is it actually happened and Jesus was the, was the son of God. And so what have we missed? Again, a lot of folks are going to be listening. And this, I know your book is ecumenical and it, and it could be read by any person, but a lot of the folks are going to be listening to us today tend to be on the, well, the more conservative or traditional side of the Wesleyan in camp. So what do we need to hear in two ways, would you say, from reading the book? Um, you know, we're going to perhaps face some ostracization um, and maybe experience persecution at some level, maybe soon, um, maybe not, but it could. But at the same time, sometimes we're critiqued for not embracing the other to the extent that maybe um, somebody on the other side might actually say, and I'm not trying to get us into any kind of particular issues, but, but there seems like there's a line there. So how can, what's the best word 
for us that that feel like beginning like we're being pushed into a corner where the tendency at least you know in the united states is fight back but jesus doesn't fight back right so um how, how do we keep that line about being radically open to the others and whoever the other is persons that are desperate for what only Jesus, uh, God can do through the power of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and the power, you know, the outpouring of the Spirit. How do we stay open yeah, yeah. yet at the I same time embrace great, suffering? Yeah, great question. A great question. And I've been influenced by people in my own journey. Uh, I've made mistakes in my own journey in terms of how to yeah. present things. I did not make that mistake in this book. And <laughs> here's what I did, and you'll understand what I did. Uh, I tried to be positive That's in good. this book. I was yeah. very careful of my audience. Um, I'm trying to win everyone. Uh, political leftists, political rightists, uh, people who do things we find morally offensive to people who do things that are morally great. I want everyone to see the beauty of Christ and in seeing that beauty, which is intimately related to his goodness, they will be transformed. Amen. And as you just said earlier, you know, uh, it has so affected me. I can't think of a greater story. And that's true. That's what I've said in this book. There's not a greater story. I don't care if you're at Harvard in the English department, you can't come up with a greater story that the highest, that is God who comes descends to the lowest, and in embracing all that suffering, rejection, ostracism, and shame, demonstrates a love. Nails can't destroy it. Taunting can't weaken it. Hatred cannot overcome it. When you see that love in its goodness and purity, you want to praise. You say praise, glory. Let him have all power, all honor, all glory not the self-absorbed, not people who are looking for the cushy seats in the kingdom of God, not who are looking for the best appointments, but the one who was for others. Oh, man. Well, I want you to keep going. That's that's just speaking right to my soul. I'm ready to go to the altar now, Ken. That was, that was beautiful. I mean, seriously, I love that. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what I want people to get a little sense of your, the heart that's behind this. Cause you know, a lot of people might say, Hey, Ken Collins, he's this written these, all these awesome books on Wesley. Obviously you have some things available, a little bit more popular, but you know, when you hear you preach like that, it's like, um, you know, to me, that's what Asbury's always been about at our very best is that we have great scholars. And again, actually, I have to say that's what a Christian is at their best, a Christian scholar, um, great mind, and then has that heart that comes out with just the, you know, what I just heard you is, I mean, what you're in this for the beauty of Jesus Christ and the glorification of, of, of who God is and all things that you do. So thanks for letting some of that passion out right there too. Cause that, that, that was, um, that, that was really good. So if you're a past, if a pastor is listening to this, cause we have lay people, sorry. And we have a lot of pastors. Let, that let are, me just that, say one yeah. more thing. I think I have yeah. something else to say on okay, this good, about good. being positive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was speaking to a number of people of late and we were talking about this issue. Here's why being positive is helpful. Yeah. If you go negative and there are lots of ways that that the church can go negative today. If you go negative, if you're criticizing X, let's say what X is, you're criticizing X. Then what you end up doing all the time, you're talking about X. You're talking about X. You're talking about that narrative. If I go in positively, and, and talk about the beauty of God, the goodness of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that we have in Christ, 
and I lay that out positively in a way that is attractive for so many people, yes, I'm going to have critics, okay? Let them criticize me, and then what is that going to do? It's going to give me opportunity to continue to talk about my narrative, because now I can defend it in so many different ways. The positive approach is the way to go, because we want all people, and all means all, both inside the church and outside the church, to come to understand in a powerful way who Jesus Christ is. Oh, so good. So good. I always say, like, even the Exodus, uh, I teach Exodus all the time. And one of the things that kind of strikes so many students is um, when we think of the Exodus, most people just think of getting out of Egypt, but the whole most of the book is actually about Sinai and even heading to the promised land. So I always just talk about it's freedom from, but it's freedom for. And if and we ever miss yeah. the four part of the gospel, <laughs> we just kind of missed it because it's so it's always easy in our culture. You can actually be pretty famous just being against stuff, but then after it's all burned down, what's left. And again, I want to thank you just in the book um, and for giving us a robust picture of <laughs> what, what the Bible's actually for. And just thanks for articulating that so powerfully. So for the pastors that are listening today, I mean, I think you've given a key thing is we need to preach Christ with courage and preach what we're for. Yes. What would you say to the pastor? And maybe this is where the suffering piece comes in that um, they're being criticized for even articulating um, the power of God to deliver from certain types of things or, you know, they're naming sort of presenting sins and speaking how the gospel can deliver a person from that. So, so how do you encourage, a, would you encourage a pastor who's being criticized for actually calling for you know, full-scale repentance and turning to Christ for, for, for everybody. But that how, how, how do you encourage your pastor yeah. to continue to proclaim? Yeah, I, I, I want to start out by uh, lifting up the writings of C.S. Lewis, who yeah, I think has good. been very helpful here, especially when he talks about friendship. Mm -hmm. uh, a friend uh, is someone who directs us to our highest good. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and doesn't simply tell us what we want to hear, you know, and, uh, through flattery or through self-aggrandizement or something like that. A friend, a real friend, a good friend, a true friend is someone who will counsel us, guide us, direct us towards the very highest good that he or she is directed towards themselves. And so having said that, I think pastors knowing the great good that is had in Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of sins, and then secondly, the transformation and renewal of our nature and all that that entails, that is such an enormous and great good that they must continue to be about it. Now, if they're getting criticism, uh, that's okay. That's You have to expect that. Uh, but they, that's an opportunity to continue in a positive way uh, on that narrative and to show what God is transforming us into, that we have the mind of Christ, that we become beautiful like Jesus is beautiful, that we love like Jesus loves, um, that we, as Luther said, we live in God through faith and in our neighbor through love, that kind of transcendence that kind of beautiful life that happens. And so I would encourage pastors to remain faithful. The way I think about this in my own life, and I'm a professor who sometimes is in the pulpit, but most often I'm in the classroom, as you well know, 
I look at it this way, that suffering is going to be ongoing. It's going to be ongoing. And I'm not looking to remove suffering from my life. I'm not. I think that's childish. I think that's an immature faith. Suffering is going to come. But what I look for is the grace of perseverance uh, and the grace for ongoing trust. And in the context of suffering and perseverance and trust, that equals greater goodness and beauty over time. And it's almost as if we can't get to that greater goodness and beauty unless we know Christ in this way, unless we get a taste of some of the alienation, rejection, ostracism, slander, ridicule that he experienced, and we get a taste of that as well, precisely because he was good, and precisely because we want to remain in the good of the gospel uh, by God's grace. And it's obviously the earliest church was under extreme pressures from, from the culture, and the message of suffering, I mean, you know, I'll be honest, I don't, I prefer not to suffer too much. I'll just, <laughs> just say that, but I do recognize that that's part of life and that's part of being a Christian. So, so how do you avoid, okay, well, this is one's a self-awareness question. So again, we would never want to avoid suffering for the sake of the gospel, because that would be in a sense a betrayal of our faith. <clears throat> how do we grow in Christ enough so that the suffering isn't maybe deserved because we don't we act in certain maybe just political ways and then we just mask it in the gospels because there's always that danger right that uh, uh you just mask oh i'm suffering for jesus when really maybe you're suffering because you just weren't very nice to somebody or so you know what i mean so how do you how do you actually nuance that a little bit and and this is where i'd like to hear talk a little bit about the, being the transformed in christ how do we yeah. build a self christian self-awareness to be courageous, have a courageous, robust yeah. faith yeah. that doesn't that. And if people reject the, the our faith, they're not rejecting some messed up dimension of ourself. And yeah. not that we could be hundred percent, yeah. and they're rejecting like the Christ. Start, yeah. Start out in a response by noting um, the beatitudes found in That's Matthew, good. and then the briefer beatitudes, which I used as a text found in Luke, um, because suffering is very much a part of that blessedness yeah that that it's and you you can't get away from it when john wesley read the imitation of christ it shook him up yeah because the imitation of christ in a very realistic way it talks about the consolations of faith but it also talks about the desolations of living the christian life that that's a part of the journey too and John Wesley was so shook up, he had to write to his mother, and he, he referred to our campus as so severe. But what a campus, as others are doing, is in a very realistic way talking about what serious Christian discipleship is all about. Do you really want to know Jesus? Do you really want to know Jesus deeply, or are you just playing at it? Okay. Um, now, the second part of this is an issue that you raised, and the, bio, the New Testament actually even talks about this. We ourselves, in terms of our own personality, in terms of our behavior, we don't want to be the burden of censure. We want the gospel itself 
to be the offense to some, because it will be an offense yes. to some. Yeah. And they yeah. will criticize it and they will reject it, just as Jesus was criticized and rejected in his own age. But you're right. Uh, how do we know when we are rightly being criticized because we are celebrating Christ and the good news? Or when are we just being stupid? When are we just being, you know, aggressive or hurtful, etc.? I think we can discern that difference if we, in our prayer life, uh, an ongoing active prayer life, and through community, responsible, accountable, small groups that we're a part of, where people can address us by name and tell us, hey, Ken, you're wrong here. You, you need to think about this, et cetera. We all need that. We all need that. And I think that process has to be ongoing. Uh, so we listen to others. We hear their voice in, in terms of what we're doing. Okay. I love that. Yeah, and, and I want to move to the kind of close the interview down a little bit. I'm really grateful for you sharing all these things. I think this has been really helpful. And I think it's just wet the appetites for anybody listening to take a look at your book. Do you consider this a book that you could give to a person who doesn't know Jesus? You know, that's where my heart is in lots of ways. But you know, as a biblical scholar, that a person probably is going to have to read the Gospel of John yeah. first okay. in order to understand this book. It's, it's probably good to read the Gospel of John and one synoptic, let's say Mark, which is brief and small, uh, in order to get what's going on here. But I would, ver I would love that. I would love for people who have not grown up in the church, who hear all the chatter uh, in our culture about Jesus, and they get this caricature, they get these misrepresentations, if they would give the book a chance and to hear a different voice, to look at things in another way, I, I would very much love for that to happen. Yeah, that was that was my thought when as as I was as I've read uh, through it, and again I haven't, but as I told you, I haven't read through the whole book, but I read enough of it that I got the impression. Again, there obviously there's some Christian language in here, but the, even the title is almost inviting. It's almost like a it's like a trick title, right? Jesus the stranger, like wait a second, I know who Jesus is. So I I, will, I can almost imagine a Christian who's has a a person who doesn't yet follow Jesus in their life, maybe in reading it with that person as a way to to get some robust depth because your book has enough surprises in it that a lot of folks, well, inside or outside the church aren't going to necessarily, well, th they all know Jesus in some ways, but they're not going to recognize the full biblical portrait of Jesus that, that you do in such a robust way. So I'm, I just, I, I hope the book gets a, a, a big, uh, a big audience. And again, thank you for, for writing it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, and having written a book like this, I'm not sure where to go anymore. Uh, I'm at a point now, having written it, um, that I need direction from God. I don't know what the next step is. Uh, I'm sort of waiting and seeing what the response of this is going to be. You know, do I write uh, another book on Wesley, which I have in the back of my head, uh, sort of and I can only write this book from the perspective where I am today, uh, having been in Wesley's studies for decades now, or do I do something else uh, along this line? I, I don't know yet, and I don't see clearly yet, uh, but you know, I will be attentive to the spirit and to others and try to discern 
uh, what I should do in the days ahead. So this is a period of waiting and discernment, uh, trying to figure out what is the next step. Yeah, I, I threw one of the questions I'd like to ask, and I, it might actually help clarify it for you, whether you can answer this right off the top of your head or not, is um, uh, like for myself, I, I ask myself, what book am I really afraid to write? And I, I wonder if, if there's a book that you have in you that you've thought about, but you're afraid to write, and, and maybe that's what you're supposed to write next. Well, I can think of articles that I'm afraid to write, uh, <laughs> but not not whole books. Uh, okay, gotcha. The books that I'm envisioning, uh, I think will find a place. They'll find a place. I just don't know what direction to go right gotcha. now. And so that means for me, I have to prayerfully wait and be patient. And uh, I believe God and friends will help me in this process. Okay, cool. So you talked about jogging already. And that's something, again, I live in Orlando. You live in Lexington. So I didn't, I didn't know that. I I run. Other people jog maybe, uh, and some are joggers, but I'm a runner. (laughs) Okay. So you're moving pretty quick out there is what you're telling me. So that's pretty cool. So, well, you might as well brag about your five mile time then. So what what is it under 50 minutes or something? So you're moving pretty quick out there. Well, uh, I'm not that fast, but I'm just being facetious. I'm just being a little facetious here. Well, that's but I, I try to go at a, at a fairly good clip and I find it liberating. Um, yeah. No, that's fun. So besides um, running, what's a typical day look like? You and, I, and by the way, I loved that example that you did. So when I talk to folks, a lot of people say, I don't have time to do formative practices, but you just illustrated you exercise and are praying at the same time, which is Absolutely. awesome, right? So you're- a, I, I think it's a great combination. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a great combination. And I think some runners out there will will get it. They will understand it because when I'm running, when I get beyond three miles, a different sort of thinking take takes yes. over. You know, I my normal cogitating mind sort of drops out. I see things more clearly, more intuitively. I see holistically. I see big pictures more clearly. And so it's with that kind of mind that I'm deeply praying and thinking about texts in the Bible um, and thinking about Jesus. And so, you know, as I said in the book, my prayers at that point are very thick. Uh, It's a different sort of thinking that's going on by that point when you're running that long. And runners will know what I'm talking about. They'll know right away. And so I think it's a great combination. Prayer and running, absolute great combination. I glorify God when I'm praying. I mean, worship and glorify God when I'm running. Uh, So it's running, praying, glorifying God, sometimes petition, sometimes intercession uh, that's going on. And I I find it exhilarating. No, I I love that. It's such a great, uh, great model. I could just go off, go and make a whole conversation about that. Cause uh, yeah. So, but this is about you though. So what, what other formative practices do you find? I mean, you have a rule of life and I'm not asking for all the yeah, details, I, but what like, what's do, it look like for you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What I do is I pray uh, in the mornings, um, you know, maybe half hour, 45 minutes. Um, and then, you know, I start my day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then throughout the day, I will be doing a most often I do some spiritual reading during the day, almost simply as a seminary professor, I'm doing it. But then I make sure that I read scripture uh, at night. Uh, usually for me, it's at night. I read two chapters from the Old Testament. I read one chapter from the New Testament every day. I need that 
Uh, I need that to stay grounded and rooted in our story, in our narrative, uh, because there are so many different narratives out there in our culture today, and they are trying to displace our narrative. You know, I, I, I think it's akin to almost like the ancient Gnostics in the church, that they used all the language of the church, you know, grace, faith, salvation, Jesus, but they invested it with all new meanings. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be deeply rooted in the word and to understand our story in every which way so that I, as a leader in the church, can recognize when some other narratives out there in our culture are trying to offer the pretense uh, that they are the gospel by using our language, but actually another narrative is calling the tune. Uh, and so you, you're probably aware of this as well as a biblical scholar, but I have to be on top of that. No, that's good. So good. Yeah, I always like, I, I like to ask every guest that because it's just interesting to hear how people lay out rhythms. Not that we have to have a cookie cutter spirituality, but you know, we all have there's core things we all have to do, but most people do them in different way. And some folks think you have to do it the same way for everybody. Yeah. And it's just fun to right. hear how you said that. So thank you. Now here's the impulse. This is the hardest question of the whole interview, especially for a man who's read literally thousands of books. So if you're just going to pick two or three that have really impacted you spiritually, you know, at a deep personal level, what, what would those two or three books outside of scripture itself? Right. Well, I've already named one, yeah. so it's going to be one of my three. You already know that, and that's Wesley's 52 Standard Sermons, or Wesley's Sermons. I like uh, the new collection by a couple of scholars out there, uh, the Sermons of John Wesley, a collection for the Christian journey. Works for me. Yeah, who are those uh, guys that wrote that? I think I know who they are, right? Yeah, so. I think I know them both, actually. Um, <laughs> and then another book, this may surprise you. It's a book by Emil Bruner. Uh Divine Human Correspondence or Divine Human Encounter. Yeah. Uh, it, it's oftentimes presented as Divine Human Encounter or Divine Human Correspondence. It, it's, I've seen two English titles. But at any rate, that book has been very influential on my perspective because, and that, that perspective is in the book. Uh, it's worked in the themes because uh, he puts an emphasis on persons. Mm -hmm. When we talk about uh, what are the two grateful commandments, it's the love of God and, and the Christian understanding of God is personal, Father, Son, Spirit, it's relational, and the love of neighbor as ourselves. Good. And so when we are summarizing the law, the, the, you know, the Torah, the love of God, the love of neighbor, the two grateful commandments, it's all about people. And sometimes we forget that. We do. Even in the church, we start to think it's about things yeah. or it's about stuff. No, it's not. It's about God, Father, Son, Spirit, the persons being in proper relation to them and then loving our neighbor and being in proper relation to those persons. That, that's getting at the heart. And I always want to be centered in that, that this is what it's all about. Um, and sometimes people get sidetracked with that. And then the last book I'm going to list here uh, is Luther's Galatians Commentary, the 1535 edition, the one that Charles Wesley read, okay. which helped to lead to his evangelical conversion, although his brother John didn't like uh, Luther's commentary on the Galatians. I think that's because he misread it. 
Uh, but I love that book because it shows me what vibrant faith looks like. It's good. And so those would be my three beyond the Bible. Wesley's sermons, uh, Bruner's divine human encounter, and then Luther's uh, commentary on the Galatians 1535 edition. Yes, those are all powerful books. Well, a final question, and I know that, I mean, if folks can find out more about you at Asbury's, uh, on Asbury's website, I'll link to your, your faculty bio. Are, are, are you online anywhere that people might want to connect with you after they hear this uh, interview? Well, they can connect with me at the seminary through email. If yeah. they want to see my other publications, they can go to amazon.com, you know, just okay. type in Kenneth J. Collins. I have an author page. Okay. I have a little bio. I have uh, pictures. I'm probably going to put a video up there soon. That's Maybe good. even this video yeah. we could put up on the author page. Uh, uh, so that's where I would direct them. Okay. That, yeah, that's great. And I'll have links to everything in the show notes. And again, it's it's a real privilege to have you on the show, Ken. Again, we've been colleagues for a long time, but I, I know yeah. I, do, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your answer to God's call your faithfulness and your ministry of scholarship and, and just the passion. I mean, I love, I mean, I don't, I, you're a little bit older than I am, but I just, I love, I, I have a sense that you're going to be going and pretty much until it's, it's over. That's I, 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 I think that's true. I think yeah. that's true. <laughs> so, so, no, I know it's true. And that's, I admire, and that's in my, at this point in my life, I, I, I love looking at um, guys are a little bit older than me that I'm like, okay, these guys are in it to win it for the long haul. So thank you for being right. you. And this has been a wonderful conversation. So well, thank, thank you for you being my guest. For inviting me, Brian, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciated our conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody listening all the way to the end today to this episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope in the world. Amen. So much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you share it with your friends or with your social media network? And I would be truly grateful if you would leave a review wherever you found this, and that will help other people to find interviews like this. If you're interested in any of the resources that were mentioned, they're all in the show notes. And I would also encourage you, if you're interested, to check out my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. It's now available via Paraclete Press. You can check it out on Amazon. That's also in the show notes. If you would be interested in learning a little more about Centering Prayer, you can sign up for my email and I'll send you a newsletter. I'm not a spammer. I send something out every once in a while about Centering Prayer that might help you to develop a deeper practice. You can go to centeringprayerbook.com and sign up for those updates. If you have any comments or questions about the show or suggestions for guests, email me directly, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next week on the next episode.